Happy holidays and welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of The Modern Extractor. This podcast focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found inside a cannabis extraction laboratory. I'm your host, Jason Showard, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. Last week, we talked with David Hall from iSpire about their award-winning vape and dab hardware. He broke down what exactly is happening inside of a vape cartridge and covered their induction-heated dabbing products. In addition to telling us about their hardware, Dave and the iSpire team hooked up three lucky Modern Extractor listeners with their wand, induction e-torch, and accessories. Congratulations to the IG followers who won, Pressing Matters Tulsa, L Chef's Choice, and CapTrip. A while back, I put up a post on Instagram asking who all of you thought was the best analytical lab to talk to, and KCA Laboratories won the poll. So today, we'll dive deep into the world of testing labs with Ryan Ballone of KCA Labs. KCA is consistently the first lab to have standards and methods to test new compounds, and they're constantly innovating to stay at the forefront of this rapidly changing industry. The more I learn about their approach to testing, the more respect I have for them. Without any further ado, Ryan Ballone, Commercial Director of KCA Laboratories. Welcome to The Modern Extractor. Hi, Jason. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to get you on the show today. Where are we talking to you from? Um, I'm actually at home in Lexington, Kentucky, and our lab is just the next town south in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And uh, yeah, it's... uh, Right after the uh, the tornadoes here uh, in Western Kentucky, but we uh, we made it out safe, and I've checked on a few clients, and everybody seems to be doing well. So, um, luckily, we haven't lost anybody that we know. Yeah, that's great. I keep seeing stuff on the news all day today about all the carnage over there. I'm uh, I'm glad you had the ability to to be safe and and also to make some time to talk to me. So, thank you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's a it's a rainy day here in Los Angeles, but uh, I'm sure it's a, a far cry from the from the weather out there. <laughs> so uh, let's get into you. What is it that that brought you into the cannabis industry? Everybody's path is you know a little bit different, and uh, you ended up co-founding one of the premier testing labs in the cannabis space. So how how'd that all come about? Yeah. So I mean, I've always been interested in cannabis. Uh, but the main reason why I jumped into this market was because of some, um, I guess back in 2014, I went to a trade show up in Toronto um, that was it was titled um, Marijuana for Medicinal Purposes. It was marijuana with an H. And, um, and so I was sent up there as part of my uh, other laboratory that I worked for to explore testing hemp. So 2014 um, was big for hemp, as you know, here uh, in Kentucky, especially. And so we were looking into uh, going into that market. So spent some time up there and uh, learned a bit about it, came back and said, yeah, let's jump into it. We have the instrumentation and and the ability. Um, But I heard from my boss's boss, um, so two levels above me, that uh, the company's too conservative to, to get into cannabis or hemp. So um, I met some people up there, uh, worked with uh, some individuals that were that were pushing for some of the gray market operators in British Columbia, um, specifically um, in the Kootenays uh, near Nelson, um, that, uh, that I kind of 
hitched my ride to and, and was able to learn quite a bit more about cannabis. Um, and we talked about having a consulting firm and building out um, some SOPs for best laboratory practices and cultivation practices. So um, that was progressing after about a year. And, and then an old colleague of mine um, got in touch with me and asked if I wanted to, to start a cannabis lab here in Kentucky. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, we basically recruited, um, everybody that we knew that, that was very skilled and have a couple PhDs on staff now. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's been a wild ride. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you guys, when we talk lab standards and when we talk lab COAs, the KCA COA is is kind of the premier one. So you guys have certainly worked your way up into quite a prestigious position really quickly. Uh, how long is it that, that you've been in business? Uh, we got the keys to the lab September 1st of 2019. We were testing our first sample December of 2019. And then um, it, was, it was slow going um, as any business is. And then as soon as March came around, you know, COVID hit, we actually had to close down for a few weeks. Um, and, you know, we were exploring other industries to test in. There was, luckily, hemp is agriculture here in Kentucky. So um, it was considered to be essential. So we, we, we opened up our doors again and started testing uh, for, for the local farmers and, and local processors. Um, from there, we decided to, to get in and do some regulatory testing. We were testing uh, for governments before at our previous lab doing um, horse racing testing, testing for drugs of abuse and dietary supplements. So we wanted to kind of take the same strategy as before to uh, to, to earn some legitimacy and, and to, to get some notches on the belt, per se, um, with some big name clients like the state of Massachusetts, who is still a, a client today. And then from there, uh, we just kept on growing and, and, and getting our name out there and, and, and kind of challenging a status quo in terms of what people were doing with testing and, and applying um, some methods that were not fit for purpose for uh, testing of, of complex distillates and conversion materials. So we found we found an opening and, and took advantage of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly worked and, and gone a long way. So uh, as far as just kind of a bird's eye view of what KCA is and what you guys are all about, what would you say your your mission statement or your your you know meat and potatoes of your business is? Yeah, so I would say that when we got into the business, we thought we would be servicing the local. Um, hemp clientele and and hopefully growing our business when cannabis is eventually legalized in some form or fashion here in Kentucky, which is still um, uh, completely prohibited. Uh, I would I would I was thinking that we would grow into more of a, a cannabis and uh, uh, flower testing lab rather than just a, uh, a hemp lab. So um, for us. I've been wanting to to push the boundaries of of um, quality controls in the hemp industry, as well as the cannabis industry. Try to get an even playing field uh, for all stakeholders involved, 
um, as I'm sure you're well aware of lab shopping. Um, but also I, I worry about um, quality differentials between materials um, that are just swept under a rug due to poor testing. So uh, my goal is to challenge the industry to, to better itself. And I've always been a proponent of self-regulation uh, in the various industries I was in before, um, trying to avoid uh, government intervention, um, usually you see government intervention and in consumer goods uh, products when self-regulation isn't occurring as well as it should. So, um, so yeah, I would I would like to be a leader in the industry, an example of the in the industry of a of a high quality testing laboratory. Of course, we have our own growing pains and and issues that we try and overcome um, as does any lab. But um, I'd like to think that the entire industry is trying to better itself. Yeah, I would agree with that. For the most part, uh, there, there's certainly a lot more good actors out there than there are bad, and uh, it seems like it's it's coming a long way. It's not as fast as some of us would like, uh, as far as the reformation of it or the uh, you know coming around to do everything, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Uh, but it certainly will help us not be getting you know more oppressive regulations if we can figure out how to do it ourselves. So I'm, I'm certainly in agreement with you there. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are the big buzzwords that gets thrown around a lot in the industry is full panel testing. Let's, let's break that down a little bit here. What are the different tests in a full panel? What machines are used to do them? And, and how do they actually work? What's actually going on inside? Yeah, so... On at least in our service offering, we have seven tests that could be considered full panel. There's five tests um, plus a couple inspections that are considered full panel for plant material. So that would be uh, cannabinoid concentration or, or potency. Um, you have pesticides uh, and, and, and residues. You have mycotoxins, microbial testing, and heavy metals. Those are the five that are quintessential plant material testing. Um, you can throw terpenes on there. Um, if you have a finished product, um, like a flower going to market, or if you need to have the terpene profile um, for, for an extraction process to make sure you're, you're, you're keeping your terpenes or, or, or somehow saving them. Um, the residual solvents test, um, I would say is useful for, for plant material and, and, and spent material. Um, if you're going to use your spent material for anything moving forward. Um, but residual solvents are typically used for, for extracts and, and beyond. So, so yeah, I, I would say that, that all seven of those should be in, in, in finished products. Um, and a, a mix of, of them can be used for various products along the way. Um, you know, there's important, it's important to, for example, test microbials for, for smokable flour, but but may not be as important um, down the line for like, you know, 99 plus percent CBD isolate. So, um, so yeah, I would just consult with a laboratory on, on what should be included in testing and also look at the various regulations that are, that are uh, posted by the, uh, the hemp and cannabis um, regulators and, and the various jurisdictions. Um, but, uh, but yeah, to, to jump into what is used to test those, um, I'll start with the contaminants first. Um, the, uh, heavy metals 
and, and metals in general, elements in general, um, are tested on an ICPMS, uh, which is inductively cu coupled plasma mass spectrometry, which um, they, you use microwave digestion to prep the sample uh, for ICPMS, and then you can look at arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury are the four that most states require um, and is, is well known as you know the heavy metals test. But now that we have some conversion materials on uh, on the market, such as HHC, uh, more people are wor worried about uh, those catalysts that are being used, like palladium and platinum, um, and beyond. I mean, there's there's all kinds that that, that people could use. Um, unfortunately, we do not currently test for those, but we do have some partner laboratories um, that we refer our clients to. In my opinion, it's better to go with a reputable laboratory that has a long standing experience testing those metals until the rest of the industry can catch up. Um, we'll devote more resources to testing of those other catalysts uh, once we're done with a few other method development projects. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to see, you know, in the beginning, it was just testing plant material, testing flower, testing, you know, the actual biomass. Then it moves into testing extracts. And now with all these conversions, there's so much more to be tested. There's so much more science that needs to be done in order to really understand what we're dealing with. So as the cannabis industry advances and is doing more difficult science to get the end product, it seems like you guys also have to advance as the laboratory testing industry to, to, to keep up and be able to stay on top of testing those materials that they're sending your way. Yeah, certainly. And I would argue that the regular regulators need to catch up. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, unfortunately, you know, the, a lot of inaction on their part um, has led to uh, uh, more of this like Wild West sense of an industry. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I came from the dietary supplement industry and we, uh, me and my colleagues considered dietary supplements, uh, the wild west, cause you could basically come up with an ingredient, say it's plant-based and use it. But, uh, but definitely this industry takes the cake on, uh, on just the various regulations, people skirting regulations, just avoiding, any quality control whatsoever and, and uh, just putting all, all types of, of materials of, of various quality into the market. You know, I, I'd like to think that we work with some of the more reputable companies in the industry, um, but that's because reputable companies know that testing is required and that testing is what differentiates your product over the long run. I think yeah. over time we'll see uh, more products compete on quality rather than um, just first to market, like, you know, new cannabinoids or definitely uh, or, or else. Also, I think that you guys are probably dealing with the more reputable companies on the market because the test results that you're going to get back from KCA are the most accurate. And a lot of the folks that are out there that are kind of on the on the blurred line uh, don't necessarily want the most accurate test results. They want the most beneficial test results for them. Yeah, I would agree with that. 
Yeah. So um, circling back a little bit to the actual machines used in uh, in these tests, um, you mentioned the plasma machine. I'm sorry, I lost the the acronym. All of these are full of crazy acronyms and abbreviations. So uh, so we've got that one down. What was the the name of that one more time? That's the ICP MS. So the MS is the the mass spectrometry a p- part of the uh, the acronym there. Um, you can add a mass spec onto the front end, um, like a GC or an LC, which is gas chromatography or liquid chromatography. Um, and then even with liquid chromatography, you can have high performance or ultra high performance. Um, you can have a, um, a GC FID, which is the detector on the back end of, uh, of, of what instrument is used across various regulators such as the the University of Kentucky here in Kentucky uses a GCFID for for its plant um, sample analysis and and us right down the street we use an HPLC PDA um, for the the plant testing which the HPLC the, the high performance uh, liquid chromatograph is uh, I would say the most common instrument in our industry um, it's relatively low cost um so the barriers to entry and uh, monetarily are, are low um and and you can learn how to use it there's lots of methods online so yeah i mean we use a, a modified um published method that it, it covers 18 cannabinoids right now it will cover 20 by the end of the year most laboratories i would say are around uh 9 or 10 to 12 to 15 cannabinoid analytes and a normal cannabinoid potency test. And this is your your adapted HPLC? Um, yeah, we use an adapted HPLC method. So the method on an instrument um, are basically the parameters that you set and um, the column that you use and mobile phase, which is the solvents. Uh, basically, what you're pre- you prep a sample to be put onto an instrument um, and sample preparation, I would argue, is the most important part of the testing because you're prepping it using chemistry uh, for analysis. So you need to ensure that you extract all the cannabinoids out of the material that you're testing, for example, on, on cannabinoid potency. Well, let's if this is the most common instrument used in uh, in our industry, let's uh, let's just go through a a sample showing up on the desk and making its way all the way through an HPLC machine. Break it down for us. Yeah, so the the life of a sample, you know, comes in, uh, typically shipped to us via, you know, UPS, USPS, FedEx. Um, and it goes to accessioning, which logs a sample in, um, assures that the sample arrives uh, intact and safe. Um, a picture is taken, and then it's coded into the laboratory with a sample ID. So it's blinded through the lab from accessioning so that there's no bias to the analysis of the sample. Okay. So from accessioning, it goes into sample preparation, which uh, their job is to weigh out the sample, do any moisture um, analysis that's that like on a, on a plant sample to, to get the, uh, uh, to be able to calculate dry weight basis. Um, and then proceed to extraction. So extraction um, 
using solvents and centrifuges or sonicators. Basically, you're trying your best to pull out all of the compounds that you are interested in testing and away from the unwanted material. Um, so there are various ways of extracting, depending on exactly what you're looking for and what the material is ba- is binding to. So, you know, a water-soluble product, you can just dissolve it in water and extract out from there. Um, a, an oil, since cannabinoids are lipophilic, um, they bind to, to uh, various oils. So you have to extract out of the oil, which gets more complicated. Um, you want it to ensure that your um, extraction efficiency is uh, as high as possible so that when you are analyzing and comparing it to that weight that, uh, that you measured up front, um, that it is representative of that amount of material that you're testing. Um, so like for a gummy, uh, CBD gummy, for example, will dissolve it completely. We have a proprietary method that we can dissolve uh, dissolve a, a gummy without applying any heat um, within five minutes. And so we ensure that all the cannabinoids are extracted out. And then that sample, it, it's, it's aliquoted into a, a vial that, that can be placed onto the instrumentation for analysis, which, for example, the HPLC, it's programmed to run a certain sequence um, uh, temperature, um, pressure, mobile phase, which is the, the solvent that's being used, the column itself, uh, the most common one here in the industry is C18 um, column, it's silica. So since cannabinoids are lipophilic, you're using this specific column um, that allows the cannabinoids to bind to it and get detected, in our case, using PDA. Uh, and that way there's chromatographs that are generated to show um, the elution or basically when um, the data of that compound is is uh, detected um, let me uh, let me check in with you here and make sure I'm following you so you're going to take the sample you're going to dissolve the sample for the gummy for example um, and now that dissolved sample, in the liquid that it's dissolved in mm-hmm. gets injected into a column of silica. Um, yeah, I will. Let me tell you on the extraction part, you actually pull the layer that is you, you separate it out and you pull off the layer that has the cannabinoids in it. You want to leave out, for example, the gelatin and the sugars and the, and the flavors as much as you can. So it's best to achieve the, these layers of, of, uh, of material that that you can analyze and is this done using like a separatory funnel or something that you're uh, like pipetting off of or what yeah typically you're pipetting off of it yeah okay and then what now it's in the pipette where does it go from there it goes into a sample vial that is loaded onto the instrument for detection it's since cannabinoids again are lipophilic um it'll get detected on a c18 column um, because of its interaction with silica on, let's say on a GCFID or a GCMS, for example, um, those instruments use temperature and, and gas. So the temperature increases to the boiling points of these, these compounds, which eventually boil off and elute off the column in order to be detected and, and, uh, characterized. So 
basically de depending on which instrument you're using or, or which method of detection you're using, your goal is to get a uh, readout of all the different compounds that that the detector picks up. So on our HPLC, we have 18 cannabinoids plus an internal marker. Um, it, we can get a bit more in depth with internal standards and, and when you are supposed to add that to a sample for analysis. Basically, there's there's quality controls that you can put in place that you should be putting in place um, to understand that you're recovering the same amount of material as you're injecting or that or that you spike the sample with. So if you spike an internal standard into your sample at, let's say, five milligrams per mil, um, you should recover five milligrams per milliliter in a sample. So um, it's not always the case. Sometimes there's peak shifting as well, but, uh, but you can use the ratio of, let's say you recover 4.8 megs per mil. Um, you can use that ratio that that decreased 0.2, but that ends up being. Um, so, so what you're saying is that the, uh, the, the, the amount of decrease in your internal standard spike is going to be the amount of decrease that you're getting in your readings from the, the sample that's been provided to you. Is that right? It should be the same as what you're spiking into your sample. Yeah. So it's there, when you spike, controls into your sample um you should be able to recover what you put in and that way you can tell if there's matrix effects like if the sample is uh interfered with by uh other materials that you did not um leave behind when you extracted uh, basically the, the best thing to do is to ensure that you're uh, that you extract extract only the cannabinoids that you're looking for but um, it's very difficult to do. Um, so during sample prep, you are you are ensuring that um, you keep the cannabinoids and very little of the other material that 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 goes along with your sample. Understood. So now does this uh, th the results from this, uh, I am very used to looking at on a chromatogram where you see different peaks in different places, which is essentially my understanding is that the, um, the X axis would be the, uh, time, the time. Yeah. Um, and so as these spikes come out, then that is saying at which time they have made it through this silica column or whatever column you're using. Yeah. So yeah, the, the peak is the response of that compound um, eluding off the column. So you end up making a calibration mix of standards at various uh, levels so that you can plot a calibration curve to compare your results against. So the if you buy a standard, um, what we call a, a CRM a, or a certified reference material from a reputable ISO 17034 supplier, you'll use that standard to compare the peak of the standard that's generated off your HPLC to the peak that's generated from the aliquot that you've created during sample prep. So then you can compare uh, your results to that calibration curve and understand where it's plotting in terms of concentration. So if you 
are planning on making a calibration curve of, of three points, for example, um, and it goes from one to a hundred with a 50 in between, and you have a result somewhere between one and 50, um, it'll be hard pressed to identify exactly what value you can give that result um, compared to, let's say like a five, six or seven point calibration curve where you might have something plotted at one or even 0.1 or less, uh, 0.1, 1, 5, 10, 25, 50, and so on, you can actually plot the regression line and understand exactly where that sample falls and, and determine a, an approximate concentration. Unfortunately, testing is, is not an exact science. Um, you know, measurement science is, is open up to uh, a variety of, of measurement uncertainties. Anything from um, just the uncertainty of the instrumentation itself to uh, any personnel that interacted with the sample um, and any error that comes along with a scale, for example, of weighing out a sample or um, the uncertainty that comes with a, a pipette um, and how many times you use that pipette. So it's best to just use the, the pipette once to measure out 10 mils, for example, instead of two mils five times. You're just adding more uncertainty and error into your equation. So the, the, the idea of testing is to minimize the uncertainties so that you can increase the accuracy of your analysis by excluding what could be attributing to an error of the result. So a lot of people ask, why am I getting a result that's 101%? That's impossible. It's because if you're testing, um, and let's say the value is really a CBD isolate in 99%, and you get a COA that reads 101, um, you can basically contribute that to being about a, at least 2% measurement uncertainty. It's likely much higher, um, depending on the analyte, the, the, uh, the, the laboratory and and uh, what you're using to test with. But the issue is that any result that is reported by a laboratory has a measurement certainty, a plus or minus error, if you will, with that result. So the higher um, that number is, uh, the greater the implication. So that let's say in general, you have a 10% measurement certainty. So at 100%, you're plus or minus 10 percentage points um, or, or 10%, uh, which makes it 90 to 110 is where your result could fall based on those re the, that laboratory's measurement uncertainty. What is a standard or what is a common measurement uncertainty? I would say anywhere from like, I don't know, 8 to 15%, maybe 8 to 12%. Um, oh, wow. There's been some discussions of some regulators wanting to have a standardized measurement uncertainty across the laboratories. And I've heard numbers being thrown out there like 10%. Um, it could be much lower, but in general, the, a published measurement uncertainty um, is calculated based on um, you know validation data that ends up showing the same sample being analyzed multiple times um, and usually by multiple analysts and, and technicians and on the prep side 
um, and, and maybe even multiple instruments if, if you have it. That way you can understand um, the, the differences that you'll receive based on who's doing the work and, and what instrument and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that this exists, but people should know that measurement uncertainty can be helpful at times. Um, specifically, Delta 9 THC and hemp having a limit of 0.3%. Um, if you have a result back from a laboratory at 0.32%, but their measurement uncertainty is 10%, then in the eyes of regulators, you actually have a passing grade. Um, the 0.3% plus or minus 10% is, is 0.3 in either direction. So 0.32 is below 0.33. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and, and that would actually help um, a grower, for example, that's that's trying to, or even formulators that are trying to, to, to ride the line of 0.3 on the Delta 9 THC to keep in mind the measurement uncertainty. So labs should have measurement uncertainties for for plant material, for isolate, for, for various matrix types. So um, yeah, keep that in mind. Yeah, definitely. I didn't realize that it could be that that extreme. It's kind of hard for me. I mean, I understand on the 0.3% side of things being you know, helpful in that respect, potentially. But now let's take it up to the other side of the spectrum. And we're getting a result that says I've got 99% pure CBD isolate. So does that mean that I could potentially have basically 89% CBD isolate and that falls within that 10%? Um, so it would have to be um, 10% of the of the 99 so wow. you'd have 9.9. So you, it would be outside of that. Um, so um, so you go down to 89.1 at 9.9% um, or per points, percentage points. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let's just back up for a little bit. Um, okay. Generally, um, or hopefully, at the high end, the laboratory is able to control for that and, and the, the measurement certainty isn't as high as at the high end. Um, but in a laboratory's publish measurement uncertainty is for an analyte on it for a specific matrix type. So, um, unless they differentiate based on ranges of a value, um, it, it, in general, you would apply, let's say 7% to the low end and the high, high end equally. Um, but what we see in our laboratory is, uh, any fluctuation at the high end is, is, is very, very minimal, but still it's accepted um, by the laboratory and should be accepted by, you know, users of that information that there, that there is a plus or minus, you know, measurement uncertainty tied to the results. Yeah, that is not, uh, not information that you hear very frequently. So that's, uh, that's some interesting stuff. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that there was that potential uh, for, for uncertainty. But again, if uh, if you're telling us, that means that uh, <laughs> that I trust you. Yeah, and and so I, I would say that some measurement uncertainties, I mean, could be even lower. But there is inherently there's a measurement uncertainty with the use of measurement devices. I mean, p- some laboratories go all the way to uh, using robotics in their sample prep to eliminate the measurement uncertainty that comes about from personnel using pipettes by hand. I mean, pipette mm-hmm. technique itself is 
uh, is a skill that should be mastered. I mean, unfortunately, I think a lot of people misuse pipettes. Gotcha. Okay, so something that you said along the way there um, was in regard to standards. Uh, Can you define a laboratory standard for us? Yeah, so laboratory standards are uh, known materials that have been characterized and and proven through um, a certification via an ISO 17034 accredited laboratory um, that is indicative of a certain sub substance um, and is usually in its purest form, um, at least of, of what's available. So um, there's various levels. At the top, you have CRM, which is certified reference material, which in general is what you always want to be using. Um, if it's available, unfortunately, it's not always available for cannabinoids. Um, so in our industry, uh, it's it's always a, a task to try and hunt down these new standards. So um, until they're available, it's really next to impossible to um, to identify and quantify accurately on a at a high throughput um, laboratory. Before we get too far down this road, uh, I just wanted to kind of clarify: what would you use a laboratory standard for? Okay. Um, so a laboratory standard is used to compare the results of a sample that you've prepped to a known amount of a uh, of a of a standard. So it's very much a standardized material of the highest purity. So you want to be comparing your results to the results of an analysis of a reference material or or a standard. So it's essentially what you would use to calibrate your equipment and say, this is what we're looking for. These are the compounds we're testing for. You input the standard into the equipment or um, the instruments, and then then you go ahead and run the samples that have been sent in by your customers against that, correct? Yes. Yeah. And so the calibration curves I was talking about earlier should be recreated on a periodic basis determined by the laboratory so that you know that your results are as accurate as possible. Standards degrade over time. Um, The usefulness of a calibration curve uh, decreases over time. Um, So the use of an internal standard um, spiked into a calibration curve as well as into the samples um, will help you determine the quality of the of the standards being used of the calibration curves being used um a lot of people just you you know they'll say let's create a new calibration curve every month but they are unable to uh realize that maybe they should be creating a calibration curve every two weeks because after two weeks the calibration curve degrades and if if they don't use an internal standard um, they won't know by how much the degradation is occurring. So, um, in general, standards are used to compare results of testing of a variety of matrix types that we receive in this industry um, to try and uh, quantify and identify uh, how much of a, of a compound is in a certain material. 
So I think this may help illustrate it a little bit. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff coming out recently with D8 and then HHC, THCO, Delta 6, Delta 10, all these different things that are coming out that people are creating. And now in order to sell them, they want to get that tested. Now, a lot of the test results that I've seen have been big spikes on a chromatogram that are undefined, where they don't actually say what that spike is on the chromatogram, but then you'll see a write-up or something to that effect that says, we believe that this is what this is. Now, my understanding of why that's the case is because there has not been an agreed-upon standard for said compound uh, to definitely with certainty say, well, this is the standard for that compound. And now that this spike spikes at the same time, that is what that is. As soon as a standard is developed and there's some consensus around that, then is that the point when you can, with a good amount of certainty, say, that is the compound we're looking at? And, and is that why we're not seeing those test results right now? Uh, I'd say in general, yes. So with HHC, it's it's uh, it's very difficult to synthesize HHC to be to be pure. There's a variety of diastereomers that are created um, during these um, conversions. So, and then to isolate them and 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 to turn that isolated material into a standard at a high enough purity, usually to even be considered a standard, it should be more than 95% purity. Um, and with, again, with the goal of it being uh, deemed a CRM above 98%, 99%. Um, so yeah, and until there's a standard that can be used to identify the peak and then quantify based on the, the calibration curve and the, and the, the techniques used to, to quantify, um, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, there are ways to, to identify based on expected, um, for example, fragmentation. So the mass spec is, is um, very useful when you're looking to identify certain peaks um, because you can look at the mass. Um, the, uh, you can look at the, the fragmentation, the ions. And so basically you're looking to see if there's evidence that the data pulled from the instrumentation is indicative of what you would see if you really ran that material pure or you know if you actually have HHC. So if you know the, um, the chemistry behind these compounds, you can uh, look at the, the mass spec data and, and you don't have definitive information but you have information that helps you you know narrow down what that could be now um, is is this the scenario where if you're doing it like what you just described is this the scenario where rather than seeing it uh, on the the first page of the printout that tells you you know what percentage this what percentage this and all and all the breakdown of what your your uh, your sample consisted of is this a scenario where you would see the chromatogram with the various peaks, and then the one that's undefined is then now what gets a write-up that says 
based on our methods, we believe that this is this compound? Yeah, that's been um, that's been something that people have done. It's been something that we've done when there's no absolutely no standard available. Um, unfortunately, without the standards, you, you can't you can't even really quantify. I mean, uh, some people um, will ask for like the area under the curve, um, which means just on a for example on a HPLC PDA trace, you'll see all these peaks. We can account for some of them because we have standards and, and, and know where they loop. But then like on HHC, it's typically these two uh, large twin peaks of, of, of the diastereomers. And so people want to know what the area is under the curve because it's a rough, um, I don't even want to call it an estimate, but it's it, it, people use it to say, okay, it's mostly HHC or mostly a mix of HHC diastereomers. But, um, but yeah, the best thing to do is just to have this, a standard that's, again, certified by a third-party ISO 17034 laboratory um, who, you know, is basically certified to or accredited to um, certified materials based on various analyses like NMR um, and, you know, their own purity tests on GC or, or LC. But... Um, but yeah, until until those standards are created and widely available, um, people are in this industry, especially, are just doing the next best thing of trying to identify what they have and hopefully how much. Um, unfortunately, what the, the trouble is is that with these conversion materials, lots of other materials are being synthesized as well um, that we have yet to identify um, that we cannot identify the their toxicities i mean there's no there's no like clinical trials of of of, of dosing people with with hhc or or even d8 for that matter um you know so there's there are there is proof of of compounds that are created that are purely um synthetic and not um naturally occurring in the plant based on these conversions so that does I think scare uh, some consumers. I think obviously there's always going to be a market for these types of materials. I mean, you have plenty of um, of people that uh, that, that want to try anything and everything. But um, but yeah, I mean, obviously there could be long term health um, concerns, um, and a lot of people they'll ask me like, "Oh, is, is Delta Eight safe? Is HHC safe?" I mean, it's all relative. I I you know I don't. There's no data available on that, and and really vaping anything probably is not safe. So I think the the word safe is just the wrong term to be using. Um, it's, it's all about risk and risk averseness, and and what you're willing to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I know we we kind of went on a little tangent there, but no problem. Actually, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, was, you know, obviously you say that the best thing to do is to get an accredited standard. And I would agree with that 100%. I don't think anyone would dispute that. But in this industry, what we run into so frequently is the industry outrunning the lab testing and the science to keep up with it. So it's, it's you know, all these people that are trying to create the next best thing, which is going to make them a bunch of money and get them rich. I mean, for the most part, that's that's the landscape. Um, what what solutions are there if 
if lab testing can't keep up with it, I mean, saying don't do it is one answer, but we all know how that works. It just ends up pushing things further into the dark and it still happens. So without having an accredited standard, what are the options to try to, you know, be as safe as possible or to get the most accurate data you can about compounds that are going to hit the market inevitably? The next best thing is just the get the most pure version of a material that that you believe is is it is what you're assuming it to be and and perform um, NMR analysis on it, which uh, is useful with. I hate to interrupt you, but uh, break down the acronyms for us, if you would. So NMR is nuclear magnetic resonance. Um, basically, it's used to um, to understand the uh, the chemistry of a particular compound. It's it's best to be it's best to use a pure uh, substance and then understand its uh, makeup in terms of how, how many carbons or how many hydrogens and oxygen atoms are present. And so you can characterize material uh, with with this instrument. Um, they're they're widely available at universities and you just have to book time usually and, and they're willing to to share the data and, and maybe even analyze it for you. Um, but the the best thing to do again is, is to purify the material, um, get some sort of characterization on it, uh, throw it on mass spec at the mass and, and, and the fragmentation and try to understand is this data showing me what I would expect of a certain compound. Um, unfortunately, again, it's, it, it takes experience and it takes a willingness of a laboratory to put out that information. Um, so it takes confidence in, in, the, in the analyst or the scientist to um, try and, and identify that compound as best they can. It really shouldn't be anything that's reported on the COA. If, if, honestly, I, I have struggled with seeing a lot of bad data on certificates of analysis because, um, I mean, there's several that I've seen that uh, show one compound, specifically Delta-9 THC acetate has been available as a standard for quite some time um, through Cayman, but the Delta-8 THC acetate standard has not been available um, until recently. And, and even then you need a DEA registration to to buy it. So what I've seen out of other laboratories is that they'll just call all of the uh, uh, material um, just one of the compounds. For example, the, a lot of people are making Delta-8 THC acetate because Delta-8 THC is widely available. It's dropped in, in, uh, in price and, and is esterification is a relatively easy thing to do compared to to making HHC, for example. But the the testing labs will, will test it against the Delta-9 THC standard and call it Delta-9 THC, even though it's actually Delta-8 THC acetate. Um, and, and this is being sold as THCO, typically. It, yeah, yeah, THCO or THC acetate, yep. So... Um, so yeah, unfortunately, that it's. I think there's a lot of misidentification of peaks still going on in our industry, especially using HPLC uh, by itself to 
trying to identify um, compounds that are in these these complex distillates that are you know conversion materials. Another one would be um, like delta ten. It's delta ten is is not all that common in the industry, even though you see a lot of uh, marketing saying that it is delta ten. Um, it's and, all delta six. Yeah, yeah, it's six A, ten A, and then even in the beginning, um, it was a lot of it was delta eight, and it still is. I mean, I, we still test samples that are labeled delta ten and and just come back delta eight. Um, so you know, and, and I would ask the question like, does it really matter um, to the end user? I mean, a lot of people, I, I really struggle to understand how many of the users. Um, of something like Delta 10 are paying attention to the uh, COAs and the, just the data in general to try and understand exactly what they're consuming. I think a lot of people that uh, consume psychoactive substances uh, would prefer to know exactly what they're consuming. But then I think there's also a, a large segment of the market that uh, is just willing to try anything and everything and doesn't really care you know, what it ends up being. Yeah. Slap a new name on it, and I'll give it a shot, right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so one of the things that uh, that you brought up very briefly earlier was the concept of lab shopping. And that's something that, you know, we all know it exists. I'd like to kind of shine a light on what that actually looks like and define it a little bit. So my definition of lab shopping would be if I want to do R and D on something and I want to, this is not me, of course. Um, but if I, Mr. Lab owner want to do R and D on something and know accurate data on how I'm performing, I would send a sample to a lab that I know is going to give me the most accurate results so that I can refine my practices and I can really try to dial in what I'm doing. But then when I want to go to market with something, I potentially send that to a different lab that I know skews results on the higher side or for the hemp side of things, possibly skews results on the lower side because of the detectable amounts of THC. So if, if that's what lab shopping is, what is your take on why it happened? Well, I guess it's pretty self-explanatory why it happens, but um, how, to, how to deal with that situation. Yeah, lab shopping unfortunately is is, is very common, um, and unfortunately, as a, as a laboratory that that focuses on the most accurate results possible, we lose clients to to lab shopping because, quite frankly, the delta eight THC kind of boom um, was dependent on lab shopping. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's commonly known that delta eight THC distillate almost all of it um, minus uh, a, a, a few companies that are, that are remediating or, or, or getting the, the Delta nine, at least to be below 0.3%. Uh, the most of it is indeed hot or, or over 0.3%. Um, and we've seen some that are upwards of five, 10, 15, um, even 20% Delta nine THC uh, in, in terms of, just like a liter of distillate. Um, wow. You know, a lot of people would cut down the D8 with terpenes, um, but it's still not bringing it down below 0.3%. So I know that I would say almost all the vapes minus a handful are on the market are 
are probably hot with D9. Um, and, and nothing and, happens. You know, yeah, and, well, in my opinion, it's not really... The worst part about it is that there's regulated um, actors in the industry that have to sell behind um, you know, a dispensary with, with security and high costs and, and uh, no access to banking. And, and it's just, there's, there's just a lot of barriers in that, in that side of the market, in the, in the legal D9 market, I guess. Um, and so a lot of D8 for a while sold in gas stations, sold online. Um, still is. Yeah, it still is. And, and so you, you still have D9, um, exchanging hands away from that dispensary model, which unfortunately a lot of people have to follow. So, um, but back to your question with, you know, with the lab shopping, um, the D8 again is just a perfect example because we'll report the, the actual values. I mean, it, 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 what we found is we had to deviate from using an HPLC, uh, reverse phase HPLC PDA method um, to, to, to separate the D8 and D9 um, from the uh, from each other, um, to in order to identify and 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 quantify accurately. So the we had a, a method on LCMS. We got separation between the two, but but then found out that there's actually other isomers, some synthetic isomers that are in those D8 and D9 peaks. Um, where eventually we have a GCMS method that was able to get separation between all four of those. Um, and then we still saw D9 at uh, levels above 0.3%. So unfortunately, what other labs are, are doing, um, and, and some very well-known labs, and, and they're well-known because you can go and get a non-detect result on, on Delta-8, even though there is Delta-9 present, um, is that they'll, they'll just use an HPLC method with poor separation and, and uh, report the D8 value with D9 inside that peak. So not only is the D9 not being reported, the D8 value is actually artificially high because it has those isomers, um, including D9, in that peak as well. So so just to, just to clarify here a little bit, um, my understanding of this, and I know you guys did a lot of work and made a name for yourself by being able to separate these peaks originally, one of the first to be able to do that with uh, with D8. But my understanding of this is if you were to zoom way out on something so that you don't have a very clear view of what's going on, these two peaks that are very close together on your chromatogram are going to look like one peak. And then through instrumentation, through method development, through the things that you guys have done, you've been able to essentially zoom in and get separation so that you can see each of these peaks, the Delta 9 and the Delta 8 peak, as two different things and identify them as two different things, correct? Um, I, I wouldn't use the the zoom in and zoom out um, uh, metaphors as, as much as I would just use the... Um, the 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 retention time and 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 having uh, space and a baseline resolution, if you will, of between the peaks. So uh, one compound is detected, uh, the peak goes down back to baseline, and then another compound is is detected. So you, in general, you want nice straight up and down peaks that don't have shouldering. 
which is like a, a bump to the side. It, it, the term is Gaussian. You want to have symmetrical peaks that theoretically you can uh, more easily identify if a sample needs more work or method needs more development if you see uh, asymmetrical characteristics on a peak. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, what those labs do is they'll test it using, using a method that you can basically download off the internet and, um, and test it in such a way that the peak, um, it's just one nice peak, uh, probably with a little shouldering to the left of it where the D9 and, and the other isomers are, um, and uh, and yeah, and then just be on your way because in in a way, you can't see delta nine. Um, an interesting thing uh, that you could do if you're sending samples to a lab is just have D eight THC and um, have one sample where it's just a normal distillate, and then have another sample just spike a bunch of D nine into it and see what that does chromatographically. You can see that peak of D9, hopefully, um, you know, a loot higher and kind of misshapen that peak a little bit more. It might even, it might even jet out the, the, the left side of it. Um, so what happens is the D8 is, uh, at such a high concentration is it masks the D9. So, um, if you're testing just mostly D9 with a little bit of D8, it may not happen, um, the same way. Like you may actually be able to call two different analytes because the d9 elutes you can see that call it and then it returns back to baseline or maybe you have a little bit of separation there the d8 comes up and then you can call them separately but with the d8 being so high in these samples it just covers up that d9 peak understood all right well, uh, this being the modern extractor, I started the show to help people improve their games in the lab. And one of the things that we all have to do working in a lab is to interact with our testing labs. So do you have any advice for the extractors that are out there listening in regard to, uh, to dealing with you? Like, how do you want to receive materials from them? Or what's the best tip that you could give them in interacting with the testing lab? Um, yeah, I mean, even though it's a good idea to vet a lab by sending, um, you know, kind of what we call blind samples, just send them in with, without any description just to see what a lab would report. In general, it's just best for a laboratory to have as much information as possible, especially with formulated products. I mean, we're, you have to perform wet chemistry up front to get separation between um, all the materials that are in a certain product, like a like a nerge rope or something, um, you know, you, trying to extract out cannabinoids um, without knowing the ingredients that you're dealing with to try and extract away from is is a struggle. I mean, it's it's hard enough in oil samples to extract cannabinoids out of an oil when you, and and it gets more difficult if you if you don't know what oil it is. I mean, it's it's. You got MCT or hemp, hemp seed or, or coconut or, I mean, it, then when you get into water soluble materials, um, uh, nano emulsions and whatnot, you're, you're basically extracting away from that oil carrier that's in the water. It just gets more and more complex as you formulate these products. So, 
the best thing to do is just to give the laboratory as much information as possible about what is in the sample and you know ingredients, uh, maybe target concentrations. Um, what we found is like it gets really complex when you have an MCT oil with some CBD isolate and then you spike in some D8 distillate and you spike in more, I don't know, uh, CBC or, or you throw in some CBN isolate too. It's just like you have this concoction of material uh, with various densities and, and even on the formulation side, um, I've dealt with clients that, you know, they'll keep CBD isolate in uh, MCT oil and just leave it on their shelves for formulations. And then, um, you know, that CBD will degrade over time. I mean, there's, there, the, these, these compounds change. And um, a lot of the accusations that we get um, that our numbers are wrong would primarily come from these, I would say, ultra formulated products where it, it, you know, there's various densities and various materials and, and we don't understand the interactions um, between them, um, let alone shelf life and stability. You know, it's just simple is better. Um, test the isolate, test the distillate, test all that, and and then and then formulate. And if 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 you need to to keep on adding compounds um, to to come up with some special potion of cannabinoids, then you know expect that the results may not be exactly what you formulated, and and it may be um, an issue with the formulation. Um, it may be an issue with the laboratory, but most likely it's it's an issue with the interactions of all the materials that are going into that concoction. So what I'm hearing is if you are receiving a sample from someone, you want to know as much as you can about what they put into that sample and probably the methods that they use to put it in, which will help you then determine what the best methods are to really start taking a closer look at what they've sent you. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 understanding um, if something is measured out gravimetrically versus volumetrically, and, and then uh, hopefully clients understand density as it relates to um, oils and, 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 and measuring, um, you know, gravimetrically versus volumetrically. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that things will get better over time as, as you know, methods for extraction improve. Um, on our end, I mean, we, we basically develop a new extraction method almost weekly based on what's coming in with like bath bombs and, and various fortified foods or whatever people are sending us. It's just, it can be tough work to extract cannabinoids. So yeah, um, having those target concentrations is always nice. I know it's, it's, it's kind of frowned upon, um, but at least we know for hitting target. And, uh, and yeah, we, we, I mean, we usually retest until we hit target and if we never hit target, it's like, okay, what's going on with this formulation? Understood. So what is it that, uh, with the, the industry changing as much as it is and all the crazy stuff going on right now, what are you most excited about in regard to the future of the lab testing industry? Um, it's going to sound really lame, but I'm looking forward to regulation. Um, uh, as am I. It's, uh. I, you know, the state by state thing is, is in my opinion, it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it, the FDA is yet to do uh, anything about it. And, and really here in Kentucky, 
you know, the only regulation is really it's got to be below below 0.4. We basically cut off to one significant digit there on uh, for 0.3. So, um, you know, doing any pesticide testing or heavy metal testing has to be voluntary. Uh, and I see all kinds of materials in the market that have lead in them or, you know, high levels of solvents and, um, and, and, you know, microbials. I mean, we've seen salmonella and stuff. So um, it's, it's just one of those things where I'd like to see, you know, the whole reason for this industry to go legal anyway is to make it safe um, and accessible. And if, first of all, if, if it's, if it's easier to get something into traditional market and the quality is the same on both sides, then why not just stick to the traditional market? I mean, obviously there's risk, but you're with this industry. And I'm, I guess I'm speaking in terms of cannabis in general, if you're competing uh, on the regulated market against the, the, the uh, traditional market um, it's, there's too many burdens that are placed on growers and manufacturers and processors that um, that can be ironed out with good testing and reasonable um, expectations in terms of how often to test and what to test for. I mean, I've seen in some states where they just require a full panel every step of the way, um, specifically Ohio is, is just always wanting to test um you know the the raw material uh out of the ground all the way through each component that's being put into the market and so it's it's just a lot of uh of hurdles to jump um when the traditional market you know doesn't have as many and really the the quality should be much higher than it is in the regulated market so um looking forward to that yeah couldn't agree with you more there. The the better we do at regulating testing, the better the, uh, the the regulated market is going to be in quality and the more consistent all of our products are going to be. Because you can mandate testing. You can mandate what those numbers have to say. But until you mandate how those numbers are come to, they don't really mean much. Yeah, I, I'll definitely agree with that. Um, and it's, it's definitely something that hopefully we can get ahead of because uh you know even we're i'll admit we're at fault for for not being up to par with uh testing palladium and and platinum and whatnot so um you know at least we can refer people to reputable labs that we trust um but the industry is moving at a very fast pace Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's sometimes it's quite frustrating when people are selling material that they don't have and then put the burden on the laboratory to, uh, to get testing done in, in two days. <laughs> um, it's just an ongoing sequence of events that we keep seeing in terms of new cannabinoids coming out and then what to look for and what to be concerned about. And, um, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully there, there can just be some, minimum guidelines on a federal level that we can all follow. 
And if there's anything that we all know about this industry is that as soon as somebody has an idea, they're going to pursue it and crank something out. And then as soon as they do that, somebody else is going to take that and run with it. And it just keeps evolving. It's one of the things that I love about it so much, but it's also one of those things that's a little bit scary about it because it's kind of like got a bit of a life of its own now. So let's uh, grab your hat and hang on and, uh, and hold on. Certainly. Um, so Ryan, if people want to get a hold of you and see, uh, see if your services can help them out, what's the best way to reach out? You can reach me at Ryan, R-Y-A-N at kcalabs.com. You can just email me directly or you can give mm-hmm. us a call at 833-KCA-LABS. Um, visit our website, kcalabs.com. Um, again, uh, mentioned this episode and, and we'll hook you up with 15% off. All right. And, um, you know, we're, we're always happy to, to, to answer questions. You know, we might take a little bit of time to get back to you, but, but you know, we try to be as active in the community as possible. And, um, and, and also, we're, you know, we're learning a, a, alongside everybody else. I mean, it's just one of those things uh, that I like most about this industry is that we are all growing um, together and expanding our knowledge together. And while we do that, um, we just continue to create this industry that seems to have no uh, no barriers in terms of uh, where it can go. Yeah, here we go. Grab your hat. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, Ryan Ballone, Commercial Director of KCA Labs. Thanks for joining us on The Modern Extractor. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again to Ryan for joining us today. You can reach him directly via email, ryan at kcalabs.com or give them a call at 833-KCA-LABS. As he said, they're offering ModX listeners 15% off of testing if you mention this interview. As always, if you want to hear about something specific on the show, let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you're finding value in the show, please take a few minutes to show me some love and write a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. That means you. Come on, it's Christmas time. The more reviews the show has, the wider the audience it will reach, and the better guests I can keep booking for you here in the future. We're going to be taking a few weeks off from regular full-length episodes for the holidays, but I've got some bonus episodes that will be airing in their stead. Stay tuned next week for my interview from BizCon with Kyle Detweiler, CEO of Clever Leaves. They're the first company to successfully import scheduled cannabinoids into the U.S., and they're poised to significantly disrupt the industry. A big thanks to Isada Venegas for handling business on the show's social media, and a shout-out to the New Fools for bringing the funk to the Mod X theme song. A very sincere thank you to all of you for your ears. December 22nd is exactly one year from the first episode of The Modern Extractor hitting the airwaves, and this has gotten way bigger than I ever expected it to in one year. As of this recording, we're just shy of 22,000 downloads, and they're coming from 67 different countries. I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but it certainly wasn't this. Thanks again to everybody for tuning into The Modern Extractor. New episodes are out every Tuesday. I'm Jason Showered. Merry Christmas, and let's talk soon. Mm-hmm.